Hi there. Welcome to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast, where we go one-on-one with some of today's top creatives to open up your imagination and inspire your dreams. I'm your host, Jessica Stewart, and I'm thrilled to bring you a chat with trailblazing artist Iris Scott. I was lucky enough to have Iris ring us up from her home in New Mexico, where she's been hunkered down for the past few months. As a highly successful finger painting artist, Iris's career got me really curious to see how she leveraged a technique more associated with children's art into a thriving career that has broken down doors in the contemporary art world. So I got on the computer and I googled finger painting artist <laughs> and I was like, come on, come on, come on, please, they're not, please don't have like a major finger painting artist. And there wasn't. So I was like, hmm. Her story starts as a young girl, with her elementary school art teacher inspiring her to go in the arts. Having never known anyone else who was a professional artist, she figured she'd be an elementary school art teacher as well. A year out after her degree, she decided to take some time for herself before heading into the workforce. This led her to spend some time in Taiwan. Little did she know that it was there that she would not only discover her love for this particular painting technique, but that this discovery and every subsequent decision would set her down a whole new career path. We're going to pick up our chat and have Iris tell you herself not only how she started finger painting, but how she had the confidence to listen to her own voice and stay the course in the face of naysayers. Take a listen. So when did you start thinking, okay, so you're a young kid, you say, okay, I want to be an artist, I want to be just like my teacher. But I mean, as you got older, did that that always stay the course that you thought, no, I definitely, that's it. I'm an artist and that's what I'm going to be. Well, I had not seen um, any professional working artists um, probably until maybe my, maybe when I was 20, I had never come face to face with one mm. and I actually didn't know they were real. <laughs> so it wasn't on my wavelength that being an artist was a potential career. Right. So I had heard lots of things about how it's not a career, you know, don't be stupid mm-hmm. and go into to trying to do that as a job. Um, not really. From, I didn't really receive that, that from my parents. Sure. You know, they were just sort of unaware, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think there definitely there tends to be this um, this thought, especially in the United States, that, you know, the creative fields um, the humanities, that's not a real career or why you, what's the point? What are you going to do with that? But you actually did go and get your, your BFA. So you sort of persevered through those doubters. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing I did that, I, I decided to be a fourth grade teacher. Cause I, I thought that I thought I would have loved to, to be a fourth grade teacher. And, um, so I, I did a BFA in painting and then a master's in teaching. Um, but I still, still didn't actually think that that would ever be a career. I just knew that I could get a four-year degree in whatever I really mm-hmm. wanted and then a master's in teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I had this degree. I had been practicing um, for years now, ever since I was seven years old. And um, I graduate with my master's. And I'm kind of sitting at a crossroads of like, okay, better go join the workforce, I guess. <laughs> right. And I was like, no, I think I should take a year off. I'm going to take a year off. It costs very little to go live in Asia. I, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go backpack in Asia. So I fly into Taiwan um, and I find a little apartment 
for 100 bucks a month. And food is so inexpensive. And life is so inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And there's art stores everywhere. And, and, and instrument stores. And, and, you know, Taiwan is very teacher-oriented. And they really, they mm-hmm. have a lot of, I would call them extracurricular activities being sold in stores. Like you're, you're expected in Taiwan to practice painting as well, where that's actually not so common right. here, you know. But in Taiwan, there's like a little art store, kind of like in, in Italy. There's a little um, Ma and Pa art store almost on, you know, every block, Right. So I stroll in and I buy some oils and I, I have so much time. I just start painting like a lot, like way more than I ever painted in college. Right. So, I mean, you're in this new environment, which sort of liberates you. And then take us back to that moment where all of a sudden you're in Taiwan and you think, Mm -hmm. you know, Hey, I could just, why do I need these brushes? I could just paint with my fingers. I mean, what, take us back to that moment. Right. So here I am, I'm in Taiwan, suddenly I'm painting every day, and I run out of clean brushes, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a little landscape painting, and I was like, "Eh, I just don't really want to go walk down that long, uh, muggy hallway to that communal kitchen. Uh, You know, it's like late, there's spiders, you know, (laughs) it's my little space barely had some air conditioning, so it was sort of pleasant in my room, and I was like, Oh, screw it. And so I just finished the painting with my fingertip. Mm-hmm. And I looked at this painting and I noticed that there were grooves happening, these carving marks from fingertips. Right. Fingertips sort of unload paint differently than a brush. They kind of unload paint more clean. They um, are really easy to clean so you can switch between colors mm. and it's a really crisp clean new surface and I guess it was just my I think it was my experience with oil pastels which are kind of like little fingers yep and I was like hmm so I got on the computer and I googled finger painting artist (laughs) and I was like come on come on come on please they're not please don't have like a major finger painting artist and there wasn't great my astonishment yeah there had been people that had tried it there had been even famous artists who had done a few sure. finger paintings, but nobody was like da, 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 the finger painter. So I was like, hmm. And so I sat in this, I sat in this apartment staring at this painting and kind of rocking and sort of meditating and, and letting my imagination run. And, you know, this is a little trippy and this is a little psychic, but I'm telling you, I had a download of my entire future right in that a little apartment. I could see this, I could see interviews like this happening. I could see magazines. I could see museums. I could see galleries. I could see gallery shows. I could see the entire career play out. And I said, I'm doing this. I'm going to commit. And I didn't paint with the brushes again, except for very few times over the course of the last 11 years, but I mean, hundreds and hundreds of finger paintings. I mean, that's pretty incredible if you think about it, because you're, I mean, how old are you at this point when, when you're in Taiwan? I mean, you're in your, in your twenties? 
I was 26. I mean, okay, so you're 26. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, sort of finding your way, but yet you are immediately very confident that you've hit on sort of that idea. And like you said, you, you literally saw your career unfold. That's extremely unusual. I mean, where do you think that came from, that confidence in yourself came from? I, I don't know. I was a very timid little kid. Um, and then as I got older, there was this weird voice in the back of my head. and I call her um, my older self. I, and this is a bit woo and a bit out there, but I sometimes can hear her talking to me. And um, she sort of sends me like pictures, images, like scenes of myself. Um, and, and there's this, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this sounds crazy, but there's this older version of myself that sometimes checks in with me and like assures me. Mm -hmm. And this is, sounds so crazy, but she's sort of just like, you're a genius. And so even though I'm not a genius, since she says I am, I do the behaviors, I act it out as if it's real. So I basically fake it. And then in the process of faking it, you actually stumble upon mastery. I mean, I think... You know, you say oh, that sounds crazy, but I mean, people talk all the time about you really, you need to visualize your future. You need to, you know, see ahead and not be afraid to take, to take the plunge. And so that is what you're doing for yourself sort of automatically, which right. I think is amazing because especially when, when you're a creative, um, you know, there are a lot of challenges that go with that. I mean, we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, uh, first off to be realistic, when one thinks of the contemporary art scene, you don't think of finger painting. And I have to imagine it wasn't super easy for you to break no. into that world. I mean, you must have had some big challenges there. Oh, that's a great point that you make, Jessica. Um, you're right. There's a lot of things about my art that don't really work well with what you would maybe call mainstream contemporary art. Um, mm -hmm. And I knew that too. Like I, I was, I had, you know, art forum and I was looking at artsy and I, I knew that like, uh Oh, my paintings are too colorful. Uh Oh, my paintings are too nice. Uh Oh, my paintings are too nature oriented and animal oriented. Uh Oh, like people of various socioeconomic brackets, like my work, that's not really good. Like contem the contemporary art market doesn't, really um work on accessibility sure it's built it's built on a narrow focus and exclusivity purposely it is it is and um and so i was actually for years i was like oh well <laughs> i don't know how but somehow i'm going to get around that and 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 that was true the very basically the first five or six years mm -hmm. of being professional of, of completely covering all my expenses and saving money as a painter. And then, um, but I also knew enough from art history. And art history, as you know, is a, a very great way to predict the future. Um, the truth is, is whatever you shouldn't be doing, if you really own it, you can actually change the conversation and rebrand it. And 
I knew I was going to be able to elbow my way into the contemporary art market because in a way, everything that was wrong with my art, like those things I described before, I was like, that's exactly what's going to make it stand out once I get in the door. So I knew all I had to do was get in the door. And once I did, I knew I'd be set. And so what would you consider as your big breakthrough to get through that door? Well, my big breakthrough um, came with um, a gallery in New York, Philosophy Arts, young owner. Mm -hmm. And uh, she basically was really not of the old model. Um, I would call it the old white guy model. <laughs> and uh, she, she believed, like I did, that um, even though most high-end contemporary artists and that's going to, I'm basically saying $50,000 and up. Sure. Okay. All the way to the stratosphere. Um, they don't sell prints to the masses, right? Right. It's still like, if they do sell prints, it's going to be like a very expensive print. Um, they are not, they are not interested in connecting with the masses. And I and she's also very aware of social media, much more than old white guys. <laughs> Not saying all old white guys are bad at all, but I'm just being general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she could see that this social media thing was going to forever change um, the way art was consumed. And what she felt was on the horizon was that there would be there was there will probably be an era in museums where what is shown is actually what trended the hardest and hit the most people at the sort of democratic, um, democratized con consumption of art that exists online. And, and that could be, you know, people, if there's a million people that have a, you know, $100 canvas print from Iris Scott um, in 10 years, that those museum goers actually will shift the, they'll sort of shift the attitude of the museums themselves. They will sort of change right. the conversation. Well, and I think we are, we are, we're certainly seeing that happen. I mean, you see the rise of prints, you see the rise of street art. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yes. And that going into galleries. I mean, wh what year are we talking about here when you first connected with this, with this gallerist? I think it was 2016. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, right at a very critical time when, when the tides were starting to turn, I think it goes to show you how important it is to, of course, have confidence in yourself, but also connect with someone like this gallerist who has the same philosophy and who can really champion your work. Yeah. And, you know, what she did is, so she had a hunch and she, her basically, her hunch was, you know, love is the answer. You know, I know, you know, that's kind of out there, but love, the love energy is, um, is really important. Inclusiveness, right? Um, we call it the gasp. Okay. We actually named it that. So basically the idea is um, when an artwork doesn't necessarily need to be explained, but that people of all walks of life walk in and go, <gasps> like, that's important. That's a very important phenomenon, the gasp. Right. And it affects people um, no matter what their artistic critical background is. And so so she basically she 
she um, rented this fabulous gallery in the middle of Chelsea. She puts up all my work and who, and who walks by, but Artnet and the Artnet editor walks in and goes, who is this? Who is this? What is this? And, you know, Gabriella Philosophy Arts is like, this is Iris Scott. Well, I mean, it's so incredible because I, I've always believed that, yes, the power of art is its ability to tr- to touch the viewer on a real deep emotional level. And so it's not so much about how famous the painter is or whatnot, but how you feel about it, which I think art is why it's such an intimate thing for people. And so, you know, the fact that you were able to do that off the bat with your art is, is incredible. I actually want to talk about one of your, you know, you mentioned your subjects and opening it up to a bigger dialogue of, you know, not the typical art, contemporary art gallery crowd. And I want to talk about your series of shaking dogs, which is a great series. I'm a huge dog lover. I have three dogs. So I, (laughs) the shaking, shaking dogs is very familiar to me in real life. Um, But, you know, you've, you've talked before about how, you know, this is not a a subject that is typically looked highly upon, you know, to me, they're totally dynamic paintings. You can see the water spraying off of them. You've done about 60 in this series. So when did you start painting them? And what made you decide to say, who cares? what the establishment thinks I'm going to paint these dogs and I'm going to make them high art. Right. So in the first five years, I was like, you know, I don't think I'll ever make these high art, you know, cause it's too entrenched that dogs are not welcome in the contemporary art world. They're too nice. They're too <laughs> happy. They're not serious enough. Right. And, um, so I just decided I'm going to change the conversation of that. Um, and, because, and I said this before, that dogs are such an important crossover being. So they have one foot in the wild animal world and they have one foot in the human world. And um, what they show us is that um, we can connect with an animal like it's a person. And for many people, it's the only species that they ever connect with like that. Mm. And um, I think that that energy, of connecting with animals, pets are people too, uh, is, is the future. And so to me, I think dogs are deadly serious as a subject and that their joy and their love and the way we connect with them is one of the most significant phenomena, of our, um, our human experience. So I want to shift a little bit and talk about your creative process, because we say finger painting and, you know, I'm sure there are people who think you're just have no plan going in and sitting there with your hands all dirty, rubbing paint on a canvas. But I'm quite sure that there is a much more thought out process to this. So what is your creative process when you're making a new piece? Great question. Um, so when it comes to a like a very tiny piece, um, I can basically, mm-hmm. you know, square up to it and pretty much like a baby, throw a bunch of spaghetti at it. And, and within a few hours, I'll probably wrangle in a, <laughs> a sweet little painting, right? Um, but I don't paint small mm-hmm. very often. 
And as you start to paint bigger, and some of my pieces mm-hmm. are eight feet, um, it, it's like surgery, okay? Like every single painting has uh, a digital plan made for it that takes a couple days that I do on the computer. I take pieces of my old work. I steal pieces from all over the internet, right? And I smush them all together into this hodgepodge sort of composition, planning out the colors. And and then I print it and I work from this print because I cannot afford on an eight footer with the amount of paint I use to have a huge screw up. A huge screw up could set me back days it could set me back $100 in paint per day. Um, and not to mention, it's just going to be a huge blow to my confidence. So I am um, basically uh, advancing uh, the complicated, the level of complication of each painting a little bit every time. And I'm super careful to not bite off more than I think I can chew. I'm very protective of my confidence because it's very easy for that evil little voice to come in and say, look at this disgusting painting you made. You suck. You're a terrible painter. Who do you think you are? (laughs) You know, I have to save her off constantly. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, for a lot of people in life, but I think especially a lot of creators because it is so personal and it is so hard to satisfy that inner self that it can be it can be a dangerous line to walk to not fall into that trap. So I'm wondering though, you so you have the digital sketch. Are you laying down a sketch first? Or are you just freehanding it from the sketch digitally once you have it? Yeah, I basically have this big printout and I just basically take out like I'm like I bite into it like an apple and I, you know, take out like a half circle and I sort of I paint that and I and I basically just work my way out from a corner um, until the painting is done. And as I'm going, you know, I get to add little trills and uh, to whatever is that plan, you know, because a print is you know, I've got a great printer, but it's still not as like luscious as oil paint and it doesn't have texture. So there's, there's enough surprises to keep it interesting, you know, but there's also enough safety in the uh, strategy that I don't have to worry about a tremendous mistake. Right. And you touched on before about your work being colorful, which it is, and vibrant, and how you knew that would be maybe tricky for the typical fine art world. But um, that's part, I think, of what makes it so joyous. So what, you know, what's your philosophy about about color and how do you use color to give your work a sort of dimension? Right. So um, what I have found is that... um, you kind of can't go wrong if you add another uh, pixel of color to, to a square inch. <laughs> so if if I'm trying to say red, you know, you can do three reds. You can do reds and little dots of blue inside the red. As long as the red is dominant, it's still going to read as red, right, from any distance. Right. So um, basically, I just throw a bunch of colors at it. And if it kind of like is like, oh, that's that looks terrible. 
I just scratch it off, you know? So, um, and then if you do that so often that you start to get a sense of like which colors look great together and which colors are gross. I have a text thread with my um, best gal friends and I basically survey them at, at middle and end of a painting. And if they are all echoing the same thing, then it's going to go like it's that's not going to stay if, if there's something that sure. stands out to all of them as as an error um i am not so proud that i'm going to keep it in there even if i can't barely see it i'll make them tell me where it is i mean i think that's super important because while it is vital to be confident in your work you also don't want to be blind and not be open to listening to critique from people that you trust Mhm. Mm mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I really believe in listening to others and um I believe that, you know, if you ask five people what's wrong with this painting and three of them say that thing over there and two of them are like, "Oh no." Then that's enough people for you to be like, "Okay, if if more than 50% of this little sampling is noticing that error, then when I release this to 200,000 people, that's going to be like 100,000 people that are like, why did she do that? You know, so I, <laughs> I think it's important. Yeah, definitely. Well, as we sort of wrap up, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on? I know you have an upcoming show in April um, called The Big Wonderful. And how is, how is that working? Well, the, that, the Big Wonderful was actually... Um, penciled in for last April. Um, but because of COVID, we had a lot of um, postponements. Things got in the way. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I had a whole collection uh, ready to go to Art Miami in December that I was really excited oh. about, but they canceled that. And um, so I am, I'm just building the collection because I know, I know COVID will pass and things will go back to some sort of normal again when people start gathering for art fairs and gallery shows. Um, and luckily, uh, the online art market is doing really well. Um, people already were pretty used to buying online. Sure. And they usually would go to art fairs and art gallery shows um, because they were squeezing it in and it was for an experience. But most purchasing really has been happening online for the last five years anyway. So COVID isn't completely um, devastating to us artists, luckily. Oh, yeah. Um, but yes, the big wonderful is... Well, I would think if anything, people are... I was going to say, I, I would think if anything, people are at home more and wanting to improve their white walls. So that bodes well for, yeah, for purchasing art. That is what's happening. Um, people are home. They're not spending money on vacations. Um, they are looking at their walls. And what has has increased for me is the commission orders. So what I, almost 40% of my art is actually a commission. So a, a collector will, will take like uh, masking tape and they'll put it up on their wall and they'll sort of pick a rectangle or square that fits perfectly for that space. And then they'll say to me, you know, I need a 62 by 58 inch piece. I love, um, this painting, this painting, and this painting of yours. Those are my three favorites. I just love those. And then I was like, cool, let me run with that. 
And what I do is I, I have a 50% refundable deposit. So I sort of can kind of know who wants to really play ball. And then when the painting is over, they have the first sure. right to buy it. I don't release it to other people unless they are like, no, that's not a perfect fit. And so it's a really nice way of um, making art that's in a way custom, but is also very free. And it still will appeal to my general audience and myself enough that I don't feel like I'm in any kind of bondage with anyone. And it's worked out really well. So I love commissions. And um, wonderful. as far as what I'm working on right now, um, I'm, I'm building out that Art Miami show, even though it's going to be online. And um, I'm kind of mm -hmm. focused on marine subject matter at, the, at this moment. I just am on a little um, kick with that. And uh, I kind of go through little stages where I'm focused on a mm -hmm. subject for a while. And it just happens to be these sort of outlandish uh, florals that are made out of marine creatures and sea anemones and maybe even cacti and fungi. So they're sort of surreal, um, semi-traditional, but gigantic florals. Beautiful. So then come April 2021, we can see your show, The Big Wonderful, at Philosophy Arts and Burnett Fine Art and Advisory in New, well, in New York and Minnesota. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. In Wayzata, Minnesota is where the show will be. It'll be a great party as long as we can still hold it. And um, it's fun to come see the works in person and, and interact with people face to face. And what I always say when people come to my shows, they have to touch the painting, um, which ah. is uh, outlandish. But oils, oils are actually very strong and resilient, mm. very durable. I mean, look at Italy, you know, yeah. uh, they are vibrant hundreds of years later. So, um, and you can clean them. Um, so I encourage children and adults to touch them. Well, and the work is... The work is so sculptural that yes, it, uh, so that's, it that's the plus of going to a show is you actually get to touch the painting. Well, there you go. Yeah. You heard it first. You can go and touch Iris's paintings when you go to her show. If you can't go to a show, you can find Iris's work online at iriscottfineart.com, on Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook as Iris Finger Paintings. On Instagram as Iris Scott Art, and you can also find her YouTube channel where you have some great videos that actually show you in action and the process of finger painting, which is incredible. So, I mean, it's really amazing how you have just sort of really gone for it. And like you were saying, you made a niche for yourself and you made it happen. And I think that's a great example for artists in general and for female artists to, you know, listen to their inner voice and follow the path that they think is right for them. Yeah, absolutely. Future's female. Jessica, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for once again tuning in to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Iris Scott. To see more of her work, check out the episode description where we've left links to her website and social media profiles. You can also browse the My Modern Met Top Artist Facebook and Instagram for images of some of the artwork we spoke about today. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a review so that more people can discover the show. 
We'll see you next time on the My Modern Met Top Artist podcast. Until then, stay inspired and keep reaching for your dreams.